Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Travel passports now an issue for the federal government. What is driving vaccine hesitancy in Canada? A fall election coming September 20th. We'll hear about it on Sunday. It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Rumor has it Prime Minister Trudeau will call an election this Sunday. What? Yes! That is exactly what we were looking for as we enter the fourth wave for the unvaccinated. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, there you go. Guess we know where he stands. Or maybe it's just simple exploitation. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keep it the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, you can send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900CHML.com. And again, I, you know, I just want to be really clear about this vaccine passport thing on the provincial level. Uh, the feds just announced they're going to do it on the federal level, which is a great idea. And I'm fully supportive of everyone getting a vaccine uh, vaccination as soon as they can. Here comes the commentary. In the ongoing discussions we had yesterday on the show around the significance or lack thereof of a provincial vaccine passport, when we already have on our phones the receipt code and confirmation of vaccine from your point of vaccination. But I have finally realized what their discussion is all about. This has nothing to do with proving who is vaccinated and who is not vaccinated, because we can already do that with the system we have. What was revealed yesterday is some think if we make a provincial passport mandatory, many will think they will need it to get into some place they can't. But that is simply not true. I fully support vaccination, but the fact is it is not mandatory in Canada, the U.S., and most of Europe. If a place of business decides it will not let the unvaccinated in... That's great. That's their choice. But a vaccine passport will not keep them out or in any more than the confirmation that's already on their phone. If you don't want the unvaccinated in, you've got to make that call because they're not mandatory. And a passport won't make that conversation at the door any nicer than will the confirmation you already have. Provincial vaccine passports are a smokescreen from those who want the vaccine to be made mandatory. And I get that. But that is a totally different discussion than the documentation needed to show your proof of vaccination and is very deceitful. And you wonder why some are skeptical about this stuff. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Ryan Malo, Senior Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am. Thanks for having me. All right, two different issues here, a federal one, a uh, federal uh, passport that has uh, now been announced for travel, and then the provincial passports. Let's start with the provincial passports. Is this redundant, and is this, as I just said in the preamble, about providing adequate proof of vaccination, or is it about uh, having the debate of making vaccines mandatory in certain non-essential settings? Yeah, I think what we're hearing from our members is there isn't really a concern out there on what would the proof look like? That's not really a debate that I've heard. Uh, I know that the government has pointed to the, the vaccination receipt that you get when you get both, I believe, your first and your second dose. 
um, as being something that they would point to. Now the federal government has indicated what they're working on um, could be used domestically should province want to go down that road. But for, for us and for our members, I think the, the real debate is, should I be asking for it at the door? Can I be asking for it at the door? What are the possible consequences and liability? And not just on the customer side, but also on the employee and the employment standard side. What are my obligations, my rights, and my uh, legal considerations on that side as well? I think that's where a lot of people are looking for clarity. It's just sort of, you know, are we going to patchwork and sort of half of businesses will do it, maybe half won't? Are they going to be made to do it? Are they not going to be made to do it? Where are we going to land? It sounds like now they're not going to be made to do it. Obviously, Quebec has, has tried or is going down a different road. Uh, and as of September 1, they're implementing these uh, uh, this form, this this document, so you can get into non-essential services. So, uh, again, um, do we do we need that sort of thing? And obviously, that's what your members are calling for, is some clarity as to do we let people in that are vaccinated uh, uh, or do we, sorry, do we let people in that are unvaccinated or not? And as it stands right now, uh, that's not a mandatory thing. Uh, is, is Quebec's way the answer, do you think? So I think it depends on what the alternative is. I mean, certainly we have more tools in the toolbox than we did at this time last year, and we are looking to governments to, to look at those in terms of a stay open plan. What we absolutely want to avoid in Ontario is a fourth lockdown. Um, we've been through some of the harshest uh, and longest in the world in certain parts of this province. We cannot go through that again. So we want to do what it takes to stay open. Could a vaccine or proof of vaccination plan be part of that? Potentially. Does it need to be part of that off the top? I don't think so. I don't think that we're we're quite there yet. That being said, we are surveying our membership on it. And what I will say is that we've got pretty strong support for uh, proof of vaccination around international travel. Pretty strong support around major events like festivals, large sporting events, large concerts, where it gets much more contentious is the day-to-day. The restaurant, the hairdresser, the cafe, should we be using it for that? Um, That has a much more split vote on our end. What I will say is if the alternative is lockdown number four, that's when we see support for a proof of vaccination system uh, increase significantly if it avoids lockdown number four. Uh, I totally agree with you, Ryan. I, I don't think anybody wants to see any sort of lockdown in any way or any form. It's just I've heard people say on TV, we need this passport or we're you know heading for another lockdown. And I'm not sure that's quite accurate considering what our vaccination rates are at, at over 80% for the first dose and over 70% for the second dose. So um, uh, right now, the way it is, uh, it's sort of the honor system and people are allowed to be in establishment establishments uh, that are not vaccinated. Do you see that changing in Ontario? I, I don't think, based on what we've heard from Premier Ford and Dr. Moore, I don't think, at least in the short term. I do know, though, that, you know, we've mem- uh, members of our small business owners, people across the province have been very conditioned over the last 17 months um, to pay very close attention to those uh, uh, COVID metrics, and in particular, the daily case count. Certainly seeing it jump over 500 today has caused a a stir on our end and a lot of worried members that you know oh, yeah. were inevitably heading to a fourth lockdown because of it. I think what we need to be clear on, and to their credit, both the Premier and Dr. Moore um, have been doing this in their recent communications, is what is different this time around is vaccinations. Yes, the last yeah. three times this has happened, we have gone to lockdown all three times. But we have been promised, and I really do believe, that the vaccinations are a game changer 
What we need is clear communication on how they're changing the game to, for government to reassure and insist that, you know, this, you know, it's a spike. It's not something to take lightly. We do need to take it seriously, but it's not going to force lockdowns like we've seen in the past because we have so many other tools available to make sure that we aren't putting uh, undue pressure on our hospital systems and our ICUs. It appears at this time the Ontario government is not willing to do that. They're not willing to make it uh, mandatory. Um, you know, you know, uh, it's up to the individual uh, business to decide whether they want uh, unvaccinated in and want to screen for them or not. So if it is not mandatory, and at this point, as you said, this could all change, but at this point, if it is not mandatory to get into these non-essential settings, do we need more proof of a vaccination? I think in, in terms of what's there, like, do we need a card if it's not going to be mandatory? I don't think that that's necessary. And again, I would also note with the federal government working on one that could be used domestically, that backstop is there. Um, I think, again, the, the main thing that small business owners are looking for is just clarity. I mean, we are seeing, uh, in particular, the university sector. I saw uh, University of Ottawa, I believe Queen's University just came out as well, uh, indicating that they're going to make it mandatory uh, to return to campus. We're certainly seeing a lot of other associations in other areas, uh, obviously frontline uh, healthcare workers and that sort of thing, call for it. So it, there's a lot of noise around it right now, a lot of attention on it. I think what small business owners want to make sure is that we do have some clarity. We do have some key indications on what you can and can't do. And to ensure that there is a somewhere that they can point to on government, whichever way they decide to go, because my biggest worry is that business owners kind of attempt to do this on their own and in doing so don't necessarily understand the legal risks that they may um, be putting themselves on and then wind up facing a lawsuit at a time. I mean, at the best of time, that can be incredibly expensive. These are not the best of times. Small business owners can't afford that. Uh, That's a very interesting angle to this, Ryan. Uh, Are you concerned, are members concerned that if, say, you are uh, Bill's restaurant and, and you decide you don't want the unvaccinated in, and you ask for the proof, and it's as simple as is going on your phone and showing that certificate. And the proprietor says, "Nope, you haven't been, or you don't have that. You're not vaccinated. You can't come in." Do they face then an issue if it is not mandatory? We think they potentially could, and that's where we're warning them to be very cautious about this. We are advising that they speak to lawyers as well. I will say still a contentious issue, not necessarily as big as proof of vaccination, but we did see it happen during the mask mandates. Um, We did see when the province mandated masking indoors province-wide, we would get calls in the middle of the summer 2020 from business owners saying, I've got someone standing in the middle of my business, unmasked, shouting at the top of their lungs that we're violating their rights. What am I supposed to do? Do I put hands on this person? Do I call the police? Do I call bylaw? What are my responsibilities here? I know they're supposed to be wearing a mask, but they're, you know, being difficult about it. Um, And certainly I think a number of those cases wound up going down the human rights road. Um, on the vaccination side, I mean, it's easy to talk about a vaccine passport or proof of vaccination system in sort of a high level sense. But on the ground, I mean, it's one thing if you're a nightclub and you've got a bouncer who's used to checking IDs at the door. Yeah. You're a mom and pop diner. Your 17 year old waitstaff is not used to that. And if you've got someone who's going to be combative about it, at best, it's a difficult situation. At worst, it's maybe putting their safety at risk. What is it they're supposed to do? So I think the government, whichever way they decide to go, does need to be crystal clear about what can and can't be asked and what the onuses are on employers, on employees, and also on patrons in those situations. So, Ryan, let me ask you this. The, the description or the the, uh, the analogy you just described, could the, that, that would happen whether you've got a passport or not. 
Um, you know, whether, you know, whether you're holding this card and the government says you can't get in with an essential service, uh, essential service without one, you're still going to have that. You might have less of them, but you're still going to have people showing up the door at the door going, I want to get in and your cards, you know, uh, you're supposed to let me in. And if you don't, it's against my rights. A card's not, or a passport, is that going to change that? I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to make it not happen. I think you're right. It, I mean, again, we saw it with masking and the mandate. It still did happen. But I think at least it will give business owners some peace of mind and a little bit of direction in terms of what it is they're enforcing and the backing behind it. Without the government giving some sort of clear indication or direction, the issue is is that business owners are kind of filling that space on their own. And that's where we're a little bit concerned about the legal liability side is business owners are sort of, again, trying to do the right thing here from their point of view, trying to keep their employees safe, their customers safe, their communities safe. That is all good things. But we just we don't know what the legal liabilities are because it's untested, and we worry that they are putting themselves and their businesses at risk by going down that road without any government instruction. All right, announced uh, in the last uh, 24 hours, the federal government will, in fact, uh, come up with a vaccine passport that serves as international travel. We all know the passport is the international, uh, you know, Trump for ID. We, this trumps everything we have, driver's license, uh, et cetera. Uh, they have announced that. How will this make life easier and resolve the situation? So I think twofold. One, on international uh, travel, it'll give you know Canadians who are traveling a, a document that they can rely upon. And I know that that's been uh, certainly on our member side who do do business internationally and have employees who are moving around internationally. That has been a concern in terms of what other countries are mandating, what proof looks like, uh, and that sort of thing. I think, too, if you're, you know, uh, a business in Quebec, there was a little bit of a question mark on what do you do with foreign tourists? Um, or tourists from outside of Quebec from, you know, Ontario or the Atlantic uh, who are coming in without this Quebec document or app or, or whatever it is they're going with, I think that this can help clear it up a little bit on the government's end. You've got something that, whether or not a province is deciding to go with it, you've got something that will be universally recognized. So it ensures that there isn't, a, you know, a patchwork between Ontario, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan if they're all going with different uh, requirements or, or no requirements at all in some of those spaces. So I think on that side, it's a positive. The second one is it does provide a backstop. I mean, for anyone who is looking to the government and saying that uh, receipt that we get, we don't feel it's enough or we feel it's too easily duplicated or whatever it may be, well, now this document will be there to give you a little bit more peace of mind in terms of uh, if you are going down the road to look and you do feel legally comfortable to look whether or not the province is mandating it, now you've got something to look for and it's a little bit more clear and that expectation is a little bit more set, which I think, again, will help bring some peace of mind uh, to a lot of small business owners. So again, at the end of the day, Ryan, the question here really, and again, I'm sure security and all of that sort of thing is always an issue, but it's really about should we be making non-essential services confirm vaccination of those coming in the doors? Yeah. And the answer answer so far, and the answer is now, no, we're not going to do that, right? Yeah, that's the way in Ontario. And again, that's that's really where our members are. It's, it's a split vote. There are a lot of passionate voices in favor. There are a lot of passionate voices opposed. But in, until we get to a point where, you know, a lockdown is looking a little more inevitable, I think that in terms of keeping businesses open, keeping consumer confidence up, there are other tools in the toolbox between contact tracing, screening, rapid testing, if we need to go down that road, um, that we can look at first. Um, but again, you'll see that support change if that lockdown conversation becomes a lot louder. Um, and if it's looking like it might be inevitable, we'll take the passport or the proof over being locked down the fourth time. 
Yeah, I hear that. Ryan Malo with a senior director for Provincial Affairs, Ontario Canadian Federation of Independent uh, Business. Ryan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You too. All right. What does a federal travel vaccine passport mean for travelers? Let's bring in Barry Choi, travel expert and with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, many were hoping we'd get some sort of federal solution to this from a, at least a travel perspective, and then that hopefully would, would have one, uh, you know, sort of uh, consistent, uh, consistent form right the way across the country as opposed to individual uh, uh, passports and provinces and such. How important is this to uh, travel organizations to have something like this on your actual international passport? I think it's very important, uh, specifically for people who want to travel, the travel industry because it's coming from the federal level, you know, there's one central point where you say, here's my information. You know, a lot of it is still private, but, you know, fortunately, at least now there's proof you can show to other countries that, hey, my government has shown that uh, this is my information. I've been vaccinated. I'm allowed to travel. That said, the countries you're going to, the places you're visiting may or may not accept that as valid proof. Right. So, so it's the good first step as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you bring up a very valid point that many are concerned uh, about is which uh, jurisdictions will accept which vaccines as acceptable. How big a problem is that going to be? Are we seeing that already? It's a huge, huge problem right now. There's so much misinformation. To be fair to governments, everyone had different vaccines out there. You, you know, what we're yeah. used to in Canada may not be the standard uh, across the world. So, so I think it's very important for Canadians to understand that. You know, that's just the reality right now. We're still going through a pandemic. Travel is still not recommended unless it's for essential services or, sorry, essential travel reasons. Uh, so overall, I think if you're going to travel, you've got to prepare yourself as best you possibly can. So wherever you're going to, you need to research, uh, find out what the rules are as far as what the sets of vaccines are. And, and this is no different from what happened six months ago, five months, or what's going to happen in the future. You really need to be on on top of things because the last thing you want to be is turned around as soon as you land in the country. Is there a standard? Are, are we seeing that just with what we have uh, already? I mean, are there certain vaccines that aren't being recognized? Is it a case of those that have a mixed vaccine? What are we seeing there, Barry? It's all over the place. You know, it, it depends on the country. You know, one good example is, you know, France right now, they're accepting the mix of AstraZeneca Pfizer or AstraZeneca and Moderna, but not a mix of Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, and the funny thing enough, I was looking at French Polynesia, which is, you know, Tahiti, just to look at what their rules are, because technically they're a territory of France, but they're accepting the mix. So even though they're under the same jurisdiction, uh, they, they may not necessarily be accepting the same vaccine. So it's a very, very complicated situation right now, and it's, it's, it's no surprise at all that travelers are very, very confused. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I want to say, like, as someone who works in the travel industry, I can't wait for it to pick up again. But at the same time, public health is more important. So a lot of countries are still trying to figure things out. You know, we're currently seeing a wave in all parts of the world. So everyone's being extra cautious. And again, the vaccine passport is one extra step. And I'm sure the governments are trying to communicate with each other to figure out what's the best next step moving forward. Uh, obviously, uh, the idea behind the tra- uh, passport, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to identify Canadians if they've been vaccinated or, or have, or if they have, uh, what they have been vaccinated with and, and making sure that they have uh, uh, both doses. Um, do you think that is going to continue? Or 
like again, you can still have that passport, and if that's not acceptable, that will not get you in. So again, the passport provides the security and the consistency, but it's still up to, I guess, each individual to country to define what the mix is and what determines a person as being fully vaccinated. That's exactly it. You know, we're talking about how the countries have specific requirements. They may or may not accept certain mixes, certain vaccines, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but at the same time, the fact that a passport is developed, it kind of shows that, you know, this is where the world is going. You know, you talk about this two months ago, and people were like, the idea of a passport, privacy issues, whatever you want to call it, um, it, it, it freaked out a lot of people. Uh, but, you know, a lot of those concerns have been addressed. You know, not all of your information is going to be revealed, only what needs to be there. And some countries have already said, you know, if you want to attend public spaces is, or concerts, sporting events, you're going to actually need to show proof. And, you know, the concern with the paper receipt and, and, uh, is the fact that it could be forged. So with the official government documents, which comes in the form of an app, and I guess you'll most likely be able to get a paper format if you actually want it. Uh, you know, again, it's just one of those things that keeps people honest. What is the status of travel right now? You said that, you know, we, we, things are opening up, that's for sure. But you mm-hmm. said they're still not recommending non-essential travel. What, what are the guidelines right now? It's all over the place. <laughs> so yeah. so the, the official statement from the government of Canada right now is to avoid all non-essential travel. Uh, but the reality is a lot of countries around the world have opened up, uh, especially if you're fully vaccinated. If you, if, they, if you have a vaccination that the country is up, they will allow you in. You probably don't even need to take a PCR test. Most of them still require you to take a PCR test and to come back negative. Uh, most places, if you can prove to be fully vaccinated, don't require quarantine. Uh, so, so things are starting to open up. Uh, but as as we've seen in daily news, case counts are still going up. But at the same time, you know, vaccine vaccines are doing what they're meant to do. Uh, we're seeing less hospitalizations, less deaths. So, so we're starting to see that that light at the end of the tunnel. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you should go crazy and go to those foam bubble parties in Cancun. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Foam bubble parties in Cancun. I had forgotten about that, Barry. Uh, <laughs> how di- how different or how much of a patchwork is it a, a, across the EU at this time? You were talking about France. Is it is it a lot different depending if you're going to the UK or Italy or wherever you're going? It is. You know, a lot of countries who got hit harder. Italy, it's a funny story. You know, Italy at the start, uh, they got hit hard. They had to go one of the hardest lockdowns and quarantines, if you want to call it that. Um, they learned their lesson. You, you, know, you know, they were one of the first countries that introduced the quote-unquote vaccine passport in public spaces. Uh, so they don't want to repeat. They want to protect their citizens. They want to protect tourists. Uh, so, so it's really difficult times these these days. You, you know, it's, it's constantly changing all across Europe, uh, parts of Asia, uh, everywhere in the world. And it's, it's just crazy because as someone who's traveling, you need to figure out where you can go. Can you actually get in? Is your vaccine allowed? And what other precautions do you need to take when you get there? So, so traveling, it's a lot harder. Um, that said, you know, it's a great time to discover Canada if you haven't had an opportunity mm-hmm. to travel. Uh, yes, again, you know, keep in mind the government is saying avoid all non-essential travel. That said, a lot of provinces are welcoming them visitors from other provinces and territories back into their province. So I think there's a great opportunity to visit Canada. I've been saying that for the last year and a half, uh, and I, I encourage people to do so if they're comfortable with it. Uh, any sort of couple of tips, advice for those that are thinking about jumping on a plane and traveling, what, what should they do first? Two most basic things I would recommend right now is number one, 
double check that refund slash cancellation policy more than anything else. You know, yeah. traditionally a lot of people would go for the cheapest price possible. Right now, I would look for the best refund cancellation policy. So even if that means you got to pay a few dollars more and book directly, it's probably worth it. You, you know, a good example is a lot of airlines they're offering free cancellations right now. Uh, to me, that's that's a smart move to make. On top of that, you want to make sure you have travel medical insurance. Make sure that in case you get COVID or you get sick, anything, any reason, whenever you're traveling, you want to make sure you have medical coverage. The tricky part thing is right now is a lot of travel insurance companies are not providing travel insurance for COVID-related travel reasons. So if you're going to travel outside of the country, make sure that your insurance policy covers you for COVID in case you happen to get it. Good advice from Barry Choi, travel expert, as uh, announcements coming forward from the feds that there will be a travel vaccine passport. Barry, thanks for the time. Good luck. Anytime. Have a good one. All right, let's bring in Jamie Marocker, digital broadcast journalist with Global News. Uh, fascinating uh, article uh, on the Global News uh, site, How to Reach the Vaccine Hesitant, What Experts uh, Are Reluctant to Say. And Jamie was a part of that article along with Leslie Young. Jamie, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. No, thank you for having me. What can you tell us about the unvaccinated? Because it's fascinating now, as we've seen Canada now, as of May, start mass vaccination. We're sitting at over 80% vaccinated with the first dose that are eligible in Ontario, uh, up to 70, over 70 now with, with the second dose. Many are questioning and trying to figure out who, why, what uh, people are not getting vaccinated and what the hesitancy is. And you really can't stereotype this, can you? No, you can't. Here's here's the good news is what experts are telling me. That's not just one pocket of Canada that has a, a grouping of vaccine hesitant. It's spread out all over the place. And why that's good news is it's because we're not seeing a cluster of unvaccinated. Why it makes it a little bit difficult is then it's hard to reach them. It's hard to find them. Um, and it is really on an individual case-per-case case basis. In our story, we actually spoke to um, people who were on different ends of the hesitancy spectrum, somebody who's been hesitant pretty much the whole um, pandemic, but then they opted to go get the vaccine just last week because they spoke to a trusted religious leader. Their pastor kind of talked them through it, told them why it was safe. Um, and they also really wanted to go visit their grandparents in long-term care, and you do need to be vaccinated to be able to do that. So those reasons really become personal. Then on kind of the other end of the spectrum, um, I don't want to say uh, anti-vaxxer because they told me specifically they're not anti-vaccine, they're just anti-COVID vaccine. Um, they kind of call themselves vaccine cautious. They were on the other end of the spectrum where they don't plan on really ever getting the vaccine and they feel like um, it's been highly politicized. They're worried about side effects. There haven't been long-term studies that they are comfortable with. Um, you know, I, I talked with them for quite some time. We dispelled some of the misinformation, and there was quite a bit of misinformation that they had been taking on as real information. For example, one of the biggest things, and we talk about it in the story, because I've heard this countless times, is that these are not approved vaccines, FDA-approved vaccines. And we all know the FDA is in, or most people, I should say, know the FDA is actually U.S.-based. Here in Canada, we went through a completely different approval process when it comes to the COVID vaccine. It was uh, called the interim order. So they were fast-tracked through the system, but they actually went through the same sort of approval as would any other type of a medication. So here in Canada, um, the vaccines are actually not under an emergency use order. They have been fully approved. So it's, it's a very different situation, hmm. but Canadians get a lot of their news from the U.S., right? 
So uh, right now we're sitting at over 80% in Ontario. So it looks like there's that 10, last 10 to 15% that is going to be difficult because we've certainly seen uh, the number of ejection, of injections just taper off, obviously, as supply has, has really come in strong. So out of that 10 to 15%, any idea what percentage of those can be convinced? Because as you said, there's some that will never be. How yeah. much? Any idea what the percentage is of those who that are on the fence that that with a little shove or the the correct education will will make the leap? Yeah. So um, I can't give you an Ontario perspective, but I can give you a national perspective if sure. that's okay. Um, so last look, Andrew Parkin from Environics Institute, he's been he's been kind of tracking this data. And in February, he found that 25% of Canadian or 25% of unvaccinated Canadians, I should say, are uh, were vaccine hesitant. In June, that actually dropped to 18%. So that's a fairly small percentage. 18% of the 18% of unva- unvaccinated. So that's a pretty small percentage. Um, then we go down even further if we're talking about staunch anti-vaccine. Um, so that's around 8%. So there will be around 8% that we really won't be able to convince, likely. And the experts say that we shouldn't focus on them anyways. We should be focusing on the people who are hesitant, who still have questions that need to be answered. Um, and it's about answering those questions and, and going with the approach that is compassionate, uh, patient, but also persistent. Uh, so it appears, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's fear caused by misinformation that is drawing, and again, excluding the, the, the complete anti-vaxxers from this, but those that are hesitant, it's fear due to lack of, of correct information. Is that accurate? Yeah, like I said, it's, it's very personal for each person, but the biggest thing that is driving this is still the misinformation, and misinformation on social media um, is probably the biggest thing that is driving vaccine hesitancy right now. Are you surprised that we're still having this discussion at this time? <laughs> or were we? Uh, is this to be expected? Um, I'm not surprised because people take a lot of convincing, right? And it is people's personal choice to get the vaccine or not. Um, but I think that because we have so much access to so much information for some people who don't do this on the daily, you and I do this every day. We sift through information to find what's mm-hmm. reliable. Um, for people who don't really know how to do that, it's really tough. So we have to give people the proper sources and make sure that people are going to reliable sources. Um, and if you do have questions out there, there are so many experts who would be willing to take the time to talk to you. They're an email away. Um, mandatory uh, vaccine passports, uh, the big topic here in Ontario, and I guess the debate across uh, the country. Uh, does this push people to get vaccinated? Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, it's so funny you bring that up. I forgot that the um, vaccine cautious gentleman that I spoke with in my my other story about vaccine hesitancy, he told me the only reason that he would ever even think about getting the COVID-19 vaccine was if it was mandatory to travel. So um, I think this is twofold. A lot of people who do travel are actually really excited about the idea of a federal vaccine passport because it will allow some fluidity and make it simpler when it comes to traveling. However, this announcement came down with very little detail. There's still a lot of confusion out there when it comes to the passport. Um, will they sort out the mixed doses issue? Will they easily get access to medical information that they need to create these passports from the different provinces? So 
What we do know is that the vaccine certificates will be common amongst all provinces. They'll include the holder's COVID-19 vaccine information, the date they got it, the kind of uh, shot that they got, the location where they got it. Um, and it will be available to all citizens and permanent residents and temporary residents who are in Canada. But beyond that, we don't know a whole lot more. Getting back to hesitancy, at what point do the numbers start to have some sort of influence? And by that, I mean, my goodness, uh, if over 80 percent are vaccinated, that means there's only 20 percent that aren't. That's two in a two in a room of 10 people. At what point do the people start becoming feeling vulnerable, do you think, because they're the only ones that aren't? Um, I think we're there. The experts say that this fourth wave is a, a wave of the unvaccinated, and yeah. um, it, it's kind of it's it's on them to kind of you know deal with this. We have the other the whole other side here um, that experts are looking at at vaccinating children. We don't know yeah. a whole lot about that just yet. What school will look like and that sort of thing, but that um, small percentage, that eighteen percent that are vaccine hesitant. Um, they, they are making a difference right now as we head into this fourth wave. So I, I think we're at the point already where experts want to see um, us focus on the vaccine hesitant because they're the people that um, could potentially make a difference about how aggressive this next wave is. Jamie Brocker with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News. You can read the article on the Global site. Make sure you're watching tonight for more on all of this, talking about what is driving hesitancy among Canadians. Jamie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Breaking earlier today from Reuters, they're saying that as uh, Sunday, the prime minister will, uh, of course, announce a federal election. The conservatives have uh, released their innovation policy. The NDP have uh, released their uh, platform earlier on today. And, of course, vaccine passports and all of this. Let's bring in Moshe Lander, senior economics lecturer with Concordia University. Uh, University. And with us now, Moshe, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> So your thoughts, Moshe, on the uh, the rumor floating from Reuters that uh, it looks like we're going to uh, hear an election called on Sunday. Uh, is this a slam dunk for the prime minister? Um, well, it would be difficult for him to lose. The fact is that I don't think that there's a particular platform that the conservatives have that's strong enough to overcome the liberal incumbency. I don't know that they're going to win a majority, but I can't see that they're going to lose power because... I think we're just coming out of the pandemic right now, and I think people just want something calm and stable right now, not something disruptive and new. How will Canadians feel if they go through uh, the process of an election and end up exactly where we are? Oh, I think they better get used to it. (laughs) I don't know that they're going to be happy necessarily, but I think if they manage their expectations and realize that's probably what's coming, uh, I think it's a little more tolerable than it happened. So if that's the case, and it looks like there is a good chance we all end up where we are, could this backfire for the prime minister for the sake of going through the motions for the exact same result? Oh, again, I think if he uh, manages expectations, he should be able to come through without upsetting people. I think the idea right now is he says, I'm coming to the Canadian public because we're just on the back end of a pandemic. We're trying to figure out what new normal is going to look like. And I need a mandate from the population to make sure that I can try and lead us through the next five years. I don't know that there's any skeletons in the closet to come out like there were last election. So I think at this point, if he says that's the purpose. And if he tries to be clear for once, then he has a good chance of at least having people understand this is why we're going through the motion. And when we come out on the other side, we're okay with it. Uh, that was my next question, Moshe, is that will Canadians understand why we're having an election? Will Canadians ask why? 
we're having an election. Because, again, when it comes to passing legislation, that certainly hasn't been an issue. Um, so uh, will Canadians ask why we're doing this then? Well, they should ask why we're doing it. I mean, just as a matter of course, right? So why now as opposed to in the winter or in the spring? And the fact is, I don't think any Canadians really want to deal with a winter election. It's hard enough with the idea of voting as it is, let alone trudging through meters of snow or rain or whatever it is that you might be experiencing in Canada. So a fall election... I don't know, Moshe. Moshe, I don't know about that. I mean, winter election, okay, oh, we got to put on our muckalucks and out we go. But at the end of the day, that's nothing compared to a pandemic. No, it, it isn't. But, you know, right now, everywhere in Western Canada is pretending that the pandemic is over. And so the fact is that better to do it now when they believe that it's over than in the middle of winter and what could be the fourth wave. Uh, the fact is... I don't know how much vo- how, how many votes are the Liberals going to get out West, though, Moshe. I don't see it as that being a factor. No, it's, it's a matter of there's never going to be a good time. That was my point. Winter's not going to be good. I don't know that spring's going to be any better, right? So if you're going to pick a time, you may as well pick it now and let's be done with it, right? But the fact is that businesses are opening up, and even within a social distance capacity, we are getting back to some degree of interacting with each other. So let's do it now, and let's give them the full five years to proceed with a plan rather than delay and see what else could go wrong in the next six months. So you're convinced that they should get the the next four or five years to 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 have a majority and get this get whatever they're doing through. I, I just don't see people wanting more instability in their lives. And so, if there were compelling reasons that they completely mismanaged the the pandemic, and even if you wanted to make the argument that they did do a bad job at it, I'm not sure that any party would have done better. It was new for everybody, and it was pure panic and just trying to get things done. So there's not a compelling story here. Why? Anybody else is going to be able to do a better job. And you know what? I'm not sure that the Conservatives or the NDP really want it right now, because now what you have to deal with for the next five years is cleaning up the mess. So it's kind yeah. of, sort of a poison chalice that if you get power and have to deal with a deficit of over $350 billion that you've got to put right, uh, let the Liberals have it and let them come up with a plan. Uh, I can certainly see that angle too, Moshe. Uh, now, you, you mentioned the fourth wave. Obviously, it's way different from the first, second, and third in the sense that there's there's mass vaccination, over 80% of Ontarians, uh, at least with the first dose, over 70 with the second. Does the, does the fourth wave of this pandemic, uh, does that factor into this? It does, because in the first three waves, at least, you could make the argument that it was equally targeting all Canadians, right? People with predisposed conditions, of course, were at slightly higher risk, but nobody was safe without a vaccine. Now what you're seeing in the fourth wave is that it's now targeting the unvaccinated. And Mm -hmm. so what you're going to see then is that the politicization of this virus is going to start to play a role within politics. You can see, as you were just saying a couple of minutes ago, Western Canada is not going to vote liberal. And certainly if they come across trying to talk about the idea of vaccinations and pandemic and fourth wave, it's not going to resonate in Western Canada where the belief is this thing's a a done deal. So uh, obviously it looks like everybody's been gearing up for this, uh, certainly from the political party standpoint, for a while now. Uh, The NDP uh, have released their platform earlier on today, uh, Ready for Better, I believe is their slogan, and, and talking about taxing the rich. How much impact does this have with voters? Obviously it grabs everybody's attention. Is it a moneymaker for them? Does it translate and do what they say it will? No, no. And that's, that's, 
it's such a tired play by the NDP to talk about targeting the rich and let's go get them. And you know what? It's a nice. Do idea. the rich have? Are there enough? Are there enough rich in Canada? And do they have enough money to solve all of our problems? Well, even if there's enough rich, how long will they be in Canada if you keep yeah. trying to squeeze them? Right? They're just going to up and leave and go find another jurisdiction that's more favorable towards them. I mean, that's the thing with being rich is that they're more mobile than people who are poor. So yeah. they're not going to hang around to be squeezed, even if you can get enough out of them to close the, the financial mess that the, the country has. But the other thing is, remember that the rich have extremely expensive accountants and lawyers yeah. that are try and squeeze their way through any loophole or any exemption exception that they can find, and it's, just, it's not going to generate the money that they need. So it, it's a tired play. Find a different, broader source to go find a way to generate tax revenue, or even better yet, just cut spending that's gone sky high in the last 18 months, and that'll do a lot towards removing a lot of that deficit to begin with. Uh, we obviously remember with the NDP, uh, they, they seem to do well in the polls and, and certainly generate a lot of attention prior to an election. But even in the last election, uh, the NDP lost seats. Uh, and, and again, we were expecting big things from the Green that never happened, and we certainly know the problems that they've had uh, in the last few weeks and such. So uh, as we move forward, what is the NDP going to have to do to get people's attention? And will this split the left vote? Well, that's just it, right? When the NDP is positioned to the left of the Liberals, the Liberals have this great um, strategy of triangulation, right? They play just far enough to the right that they can distance themselves from the NDP and just far enough to the left that they can distinguish themselves from the Conservatives. And that's where Canada lives, is right in the middle there. And so, you know, the NDP is going to have a very difficult time when they're constantly talking about their old bugbears of going after the rich and trying to squeeze more tax revenue to pay for more government services. If they don't start moving a little bit towards the right and becoming a little more centrist, they're not even going to split the vote because at the end of the day, when you go to tick your box on who you're going to vote for, you realize that voting NDP is kind of a wasted vote. And that means that a lot of the people on the left are just going to default to the liberals. And that's what keeps bringing them back over and over again. M many look to the NDP and their success as Bob Ray, although that's contentious. Certainly Jack Layton, who, who, who again brought the party, it seemed, more into mainstream. Has that been lost now? It's been lost a little bit, but you know what the, the greatest thing about the NDP is when you said Bob Ray, it's again, contentious or not, um, it's, it's power. It's once you have yeah. it, you actually have to govern. You've got to enact those policies. And it, the thing is that the NDP can always stand on the sideline and say, we don't have power. And so we can make these promises and we can make these plans. And they kind of realize that they never actually have to enact them. So it's kind of an easy position. So the, the greatest thing that's going to help the NDP going forward is they need to find a way to make themselves electable. And then once they have it, realize that the things that created success for them are the things that they have to propagate going forward. And so Jack Layton got maybe the closest of anybody at the federal level to getting to that point. But the fact is they never really did get the power. And so they never really did realize the trade-offs that are involved in their difficult policies that they keep putting forward. All right. What about the Conservatives? What do they have to do to move forward? Obviously, Aaron O'Toole does not seem to be resonating uh, in the polls at this point at all. How do they stop from letting uh, the opposition specific, well, the opposition period from dictating their narrative? Well, I think you hit on part of it, that Aaron O'Toole is, let's say, lacking the dynamism of, say, Trudeau or or uh, sing. And so the, the problem that he has is one of just recognizability. He can do as well as he wants in Western Canada, but if he can't convince Ontarians and Quebecers that they want to go conservative, he's got no chance, right? Because there's just not enough seats in the West 
to overcome the fact that he can't win in the East. So I, I think he's definitely got a personality deficit issue that he's got to overcome. And I don't think that his policies are going to be strong enough in a tail end of a pandemic that's going to resonate with Canadians in a way that they've got a chance of winning enough seats in Ontario and Quebec. Certainly not as charismatic as what the prime minister is, uh, although many, you know, some may be growing fatigued of that and certainly not uh, as charismatic as, as Jugmeet Singh. Uh, we remember people saying the same thing about Stephen Harper. And, and you know, he was sort of the cardigan uh, prime minister and such. How big of an issue is that? Do, you know, do you got to be a selfie PM to win these days? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of the way that politics has gone, right? So even with, like, sleepy Joe south of the border, right, he was being portrayed as just not dynamic enough. And so regardless of the disaster of the previous four years in the U.S., the fact is that they did have somebody that we'll say was dynamic in a very dangerous way. But, you know, Justin Trudeau won that first election by never seeing a selfie that he didn't want to be a part of, right? And so I think that's kind of where, as the next generation of voters come up, that's the way that they're raised. Everything is social media. It doesn't exist if you don't see it on Twitter. So if Aaron O'Toole doesn't have that personality to convince people that he can be, you know, kind of a selfie prime minister, I, I don't see the party has the policies that are imaginative enough to convince Canadians that they should be voting conservative. Have Canadians had enough of the show, per se? Uh, you know, you, you were talking about south of the border with Sleepy Joe as opposed to Trump. I mean, you know, um, eventually people just got tired of Trump. I'm certainly not comparing any leaders here. Um, but do you think people are getting tired of the show and go and want more substance? In other words, uh, you know, it, where are the sunny ways sort of thing? Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that Trudeau is showing is maybe an indecisiveness. Right. And so while he's great getting in front of a camera and talking, it, the message is missing. And so where he could be delivering a very strong message and he probably needs to take a page book out of his father for doing that sort of thing, especially with trying to convince Canadians of the value of getting vaccinated or things like that. I think he's going missing. And I'm not sure that he's going to serve out the full five years. I could very easily imagine that three years in, four years in, he steps aside for, say, Christian Friedland and says, you run with the party now. And this would be the same sort of kind of um, social media shock that, all right, we're now gearing up for Canada's first elected female prime minister uh, and, and a little bit of new blood into the Liberal Party that could drive it forward for the next decade. So I, I kind of think that we are fatigued and I can see way forward that you can deal with that. That may be a way forward for the party, but do you think the leader will feel good about that? He, you no, know, he's a young guy. He said he's in for the long run. He is fine. He can be in it for the long run. But again, maybe take a page book out of his father. His father did have a little period there where he wasn't continuously prime minister. And so mm. maybe he needs to just step to the sideline for a bit. Um, I think all leaders age rapidly because of the stress of the position. Uh, yeah. He's not quite looking as young as he used to uh, at the beginning of this thing. And so I think if he can get through three years in his mandate where, say, the deficit is coming down, the economy is growing, unemployment is looking back in the right direction, and, you know, the stock market doesn't collapse, for example, he can walk away and saying, I did a great job. I'm going to go check out the private sector for a few years, and I'll catch you in about five to ten. Hmm. What do you think the key uh, the key components will be of this election? What do you think the public's going to want to see? What do you think the top three or five issues will be for this election? For sure, it's the pandemic, uh, although we might even be getting a little fatigued of that, too. I mean, once you have your vaccine, you kind of think that this show is over. And yeah. if you don't have a vaccine now, well, you're probably not going to. It's not forced on you. But still, of course, that's going to play out within the economy as well. 
The deficit and the debt, of course, are going to be two big ones. And beyond that, you know, if we're looking at economic issues, you've got an overheating stock market, you've got an overheating housing market, and those things are going to need to be fixed at some point along the way. And of course, we have a very fractured uh, economy where West and East are looking more and more different with each passing week. You got to find a way to try and go beyond oil, beyond gas, uh, and bring Western Canada along the way. But you also got to find a way to try and bring Eastern Canada outside of the manufacturing base into something a little more 21st century. Um, how, how big an issue do you think uh, climate change will play? You haven't mentioned that yet. It's big. Um, <laughs> take a look at the forest fires out in yeah. B.C. and take a look at the heat waves that we've seen in Ontario and in Quebec today. It, it, it's, it's a big issue. But, you know, again, it, it's one of those things that it's always easier to just push that off until tomorrow. When the climate change comes incrementally, the thought of having to make that decision today but not seeing the benefits for 20, 50, 100 years is really difficult for a politician to want to make. So it's going to resonate with Canadians. But a lot of policies that are going to be brought forward are going to be things that maybe start now slowly, and by the time they gear up, nobody's going to remember it. So it's really difficult if you're not going to have almost like a dictatorial approach when in power saying, we're doing this whether you like it or not, and if you don't like it, just try me. What about uh, what about uh, China, uh, relations with China and the two Michaels? It's also a difficult position, right? You're, you're poking at a very big bear. And so you can align yourself with the Americans and say, all right, we're going to take a position on China here. Uh, but Canada is only going to be as strong as America's protection provides it, right? If China decides that it wants to shut out the Canadian economy or it wants to apply sanctions against it, Canada's not going to be able to withstand it. And this isn't like NAFTA negotiations where Canada and the U.S. really wanted to get this thing done. They were just kind of saber-rattling. This would be real-on saber-rattling and real-on fighting. And I don't know that Canada has enough in their arsenal to take on China without a lot of support. And I don't know that that will is there from its allies. Moshe Lander with us, Senior Economics Lecturer with Concordia University. Uh, looks like we may be heading to the polls, or yeah, as of uh, Sunday, an election will be called, talking about all things political that we may see on the election campaign. Moshe, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. Stay safe. More news. We've talked about an election. Reuters uh, saying that uh, the Prime Minister is going to call an election September 20th, uh, 20th rather, Uh, 4th, September 20th. That will happen on Sunday. Global News has now confirmed that the Prime Minister is expected to visit the Governor General Office on Sunday to dissolve Parliament and go to the polls on September 20th. And uh, that's the latest information we have. On that note, uh, Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, he is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. Same for you, I hope. All right, what do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with the election. Um, is, this a, is this a slam dunk for the prime minister? Oh, if he calls it, I think it's, um, he's taking a chance. And I don't think this is what, how he had planned things. I think he, what he had planned is that he would call an election in September for some date in October, and he would declare at that date that the pandemic is all gone. Well, <laughs> he's calling. He's going to call election if he calls an election on Monday, which seems like uh, he might do. Uh, he can't really say the pandemic is gone because we're we enough of people are making a good argument. We're into a fourth wave, but uh, but the thing is, he's paying attention to public opinion polls that shows that he's been inching up, you know, uh, in the numbers, and he can probably right now squeak in with a majority. 
and he's you know his advisors saying well we've got we can get the majority if we go now and have a quick election uh let's go and do it but uh, it's it's a dangerous thing because it could turn around a week from now his numbers could you know drop down a little bit and he'll be back in minority territory so it's not an easy decision for him will canadians ask themselves why we are going to the polls oh yeah a lot of people are going to say yeah, and and especially one reason why he wouldn't want to do it. There's a lot of people say, why why do you, why does he call an election there in the summer? We need a summer. We need to get a you know basically relax and enjoy life. We've gone through a, the last two years have been pretty miserable, and, and then you call an election, you know, Mr. Prime Minister, and we've got to think about something we don't want to think about. We want to think about you know enjoying what little summer we have, uh, you know, uh, with without having to worry about that. So. Yeah, certainly a lot of people are not going to be happy about this, but I think like in most elections when people make that complaint, give them after the election is called a week or two later, they're on to other issues. Uh, does it matter that we're into a fourth wave or uh, on the cusp of a fourth wave uh, as long as we're vaccinating heavily? Well, I think the main thing is what people feel. You know, Do they feel like they are safe or feeling that they are worried. And the problem is he had hoped that he made, you know, he made a promise to people all through the year and he's kept it. Everybody who wanted the vaccine by August was going to be able to have it. And we certainly have that. And he figured, well, once everybody gets those vaccines and they have it by uh, uh, August, uh, then, and then, you know, and, and maybe get a second shot in, in, in September, then every, then he'll be able to declare you know, in early in October, that the pandemic is over. But the what what happened was, of course, is we have a new variant, that Delta variant, which is highly contagious, and so that is not the original <laughs> virus that we had. If we had only had the original strain, he probably he would be in much better shape, and we'd all be in much better shape. And the other thing is, is that we they based as a model of what was likely to happen. What happened 100 years ago with the so-called Spanish flu? There were three waves. The first wave took a lot of people. The second wave was just terrible. And then the third wave, you know, was a weak one. And after the third wave, boom, people went back to normal, you know, times. But what we did is we essentially had worked hard to try to prevent people from getting sick in the first uh, two or three waves and we were successful but that still that meant there still were a lot of people available to the virus to a new you know strong virus as the delta one so we're now going to have a fourth wave something they didn't have a hundred years ago and i don't think this was foreseen by the epidemiologists or certainly was not seen by the prime minister and his advisors and so you know i sort of feel with him a little bit he had a great plan but the thing is, he's been stu- you know he's been put in this situation where he can't declare the you know the pandemic over. Getting back to Henry, will Canadians ask why we're going to the polls at this point? The Prime Minister has said so he can table and pass legislation. Uh, but the opposition says, and, and if you look at it, I, I think other than giving him uh, control of everything way back when, uh, everything has been passed. So is that a valid argument? No, it's n- it's not a valid argument, and I think. Um, you know, so some people, and certainly the the opposition parties, will point that out. 
that in fact uh, you know you don't have to have a majority government to do what you want to do and of course uh, not only did, has he had uh, you know had plenty of support for a lot of things that he wanted to do he would find someone to some some people in the house that get, would put him over the majority but you know we he, he can go we can look back in history where we had Lester B Pearson who was prime minister did a whole lot of stuff well, all, all he ever had was a, min, a min, uh, minority government, although he tried a couple times to get a majority. It didn't work. But nonetheless, he did all sorts of d- dramatic things for the country. And uh, so, you know, and, and Trudeau is in the same position, but uh, here he is going the third time. And, you know, obviously he, he has to make compromises if he's in a minority position, but he can basically get his way. But it's just, it's just a lot more work. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the same was true with Harper. You know, Harper, uh, you know, basically at one point told, of all people, Jack Layton, who was in the, who was in the opposition, and he said, he said uh, coming to work every day gave him a headache when he had a minority. <laughs> he said he was just worn down. He was complaining to Jack, Jack Layton about this, uh, which Jack thought was kind of funny. But anyway, not much sympathy there. But who, who do you think the prime minister's biggest challenger is here? The challenge, well, the thing is, there, there, we have a very complicated uh, landscape here. Um, I think, I think, well, the actually the biggest challenge for him is his own voters because normally, the liberal voters are are hard to motivate. You have to excite them, and get them to the polls. And is he going to be able to do this? Uh, you know, he's going to. I mean. It's, I mean, most a lot of his liberal voters are going to say, "I don't want to hear anything about politics in them before Labor Day," and then after Labor Day, well, it's not too long before you get to Monday, uh, September twentieth, when it, which is supposed to be the rumored uh, election day. So, getting them, go, getting them excited, uh, his own voters excited, I think, are the biggest thing. He, um, yeah, he has to, he has to get them really excited, and and uh, and, uh, and a bunch of them, you know. He also has to, a bunch of them in, in in Quebec, particularly well the the francophone voters, which he has to. He's hoping, and it looks like he can pull a few seats away from from the Bloc Québécois, and you know, but the Bloc Québécois voters are likely more like uh, likely to come out than his own voters. So he's got to motivate them. He has been spending a lot of time in Quebec, and will continue to do so. But uh, those are those are his those are his challenges, I think. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, introduced his campaign today. I believe it's entitled Ready for Better, uh, talking about taxing the rich, which certainly gets lots of attention, but I don't think it generates a lot of revenue as uh, the rich have a tendency to have really good accountants. Uh, Your thoughts on what he has to do? Because we remember last uh, election campaign, both the Greens and the NDP were polling very high, and, 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 you know, the NDP lost seats in quite a few. Yeah, well, don't forget that was the first time that Jagmeet Singh ran. ran so he was a brand yep. new face, and very often a new vo- uh, a new leader has a real challenge. Uh, sometimes that doesn't happen, but certainly that that's uh, that's the conservatives' problem right now. They have a, a new leader, Aaron O'Toole, and uh, so it was the first time. And of course, he was a very unusual leader. Certainly, the fact that you know the first very, you know overtly uh, Asian Canadian. Uh, Wearing a turban, you know that that I think was you know for some people had 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 to take a while to get used to that, 
I, I think uh, usually with the NDP leaders, we normally find that the, usually the second time they do a bit better, and so that, that's what the polling are showing now. He's going to, you know, if the election were held today, he would, you know, the NDP would get a few more seats. It won't be dramatic, but it would. He could say, "Well, we got better, and are we just going to keep, you know, chugging away at it the way Jack." Well, again, you bring up a valid point, Henry, in the sense that they've lost. I think it was close to half last election. So any improvement they made, even if they get back to where they were, will be viewed as a success, even right. though it's not much progress. Uh, what can a Jugmeet Singh learn from a Bob Ray or a Jack Layton, or the party for that matter? Well. From the party normally gives a leader, a, keeps a leader if they keep getting better, if they keep adding on seats, because they, you know, they don't necessarily think you have to win the first or even the second time. But if you keep showing progress, they're willing to go with you, you know. And so we've seen that both federally and provincially from the NDP. Um, the conservatives, unfortunately, uh, tend to be, you know, quickly judge their leaders. If their leaders don't produce right away, that they go and throw them out and bring in mm-hmm. some, somebody else to 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 get it to make uh, have to deal with the situation. So uh, I I would think that uh, the you know that's the the lessons of how what the NDP did in the past, particularly with Jack Layton, I think is the um, is is the example. They they need someone. Who, who who does the same thing and and I, and I remember you know in the second third election people were saying well Jack's getting better but it's still not very dramatic but of course you know the last election that he ran he he brought the NDP for the first time into official opposition and unfortunately he passed away uh, from cancer a little after that but a lot of people thought you know one more election and he would have been the prime minister hmm. and uh, we'll never know whether that would be true but uh, you know he that he had the they had the plan and the plan was working very well and unfortunately his health intervened so we never saw the outcome of that plan so you know I think uh, I think that's the plan that's the plan that the uh, NDP is going they've got some issues going for them I mean health issues and and the environment I think are two good issues for them that's what's really going to make them look good uh, particularly we see the numbers for the NDP have been going up. Uh, uh, up in, in British Columbia, and of course, British Columbia, as we know, is just filled with, with uh, you know, with forest fires, which are which if people are you know say, are saying, hey, this is this is the climate change. We've got to really, really do something. And of course, we have other you know other indications where the weather is not very good, either you know flooding and uh, in some places wildfires and a lot of other places. And, uh, and, of course, they see also the foreign news shows the same thing. So I think people are now starting to pay a lot more attention to the environment than they might have done 10 years ago. So what do you think will be the top five issues, say, for this, ele- for this election? Well, for this election, I think the virus really will be it. Because uh, Trudeau is going to hammer the fact that I, I've managed it well. And the survey shows that over, a majority of uh, Canadians, the surveys that I've seen, said, okay, a majority says he's done a good job in in in, uh, in dealing with the virus. So in fact, he can still go out even though we're not over the pandemic and still get support for people because they believe he's done his you know he's done a good job, even even though it's not over with and uh, it, you know it's not completely within his control. And uh, but then the event they'll I think they'll give him support for that and the liberals will be hammering that the conservatives will be hammering the economy of which you know we saw a, a piece of it that they just put out about having an innovation policy mm-hmm. it is it is traditional you know if you look at the actual policies they put out this is the tradi- traditional type of co- 
policies that the conservatives have put out over the years for the economy, reduce taxes on the innovators and the business people, and we'll do, we'll do a lot better in our economy. Uh, and, but it's thoughtful in the way it's put out and uh, packaged. Uh, but I don't think the economy is going to be the, the big issue that it normally is. I really think it's being squeezed by, by, not, only, by the, not only by the cli- climate change uh, uh, problems, uh, but also by the focus on the uh, on the on the virus, uh, and the other thing too is uh, one little issue that's coming up, and particularly among voters, say young adults or me- even adults into their forties, is housing uh, accessibility, where people just feel they can't buy, they don't have the money to buy houses, yeah. and they think, listen, my parents had a house, and here I am, thirty-five years of age. And, and I'm married, and I got a kid, or maybe a two, and I can't afford to buy a house. Uh, yeah. And particularly, of course, this is big all through southern Ontario, and so that's 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 a problem. That that issue is is really starting to come up, and among that particular group. So, yeah, that that. So yeah, I expect the NDP is going to talk a lot about that. That that would be their type of issue. So, uh, so we have different different parties talking about different issues, and uh, but I. But you know, it's is this election things to go on. There's a lot of things going on. That's the thing. It's it is it is very complicated. Is this election for Canada or is this for the prime minister or will Canadians even ask that question? Yeah, they will. And you know, a lot of them will say, "Okay, that's a politician. That's the prime ministers. They're always trying to look out in their own end. They they call the election when they think it's good for them." But as I said, normally after a week or two, you know, the people sort of move on to the more substantive issues. They they gripe about it that they got to go to the polls, but uh, they uh, you know they they do move on. The problem is, as I said, the earlier problem that I earlier that I said is that essentially you've got to get the the liberal potential liberal voters uh, to pay attention to what's going on because apparent because this apparently the elect he's going to have a very short election. Uh, you know, period. So he's got a, I don't know how he gets his voters, uh, you know, interested in the election while it's still before Labor Day, but uh, he's going to ha- they're going to have to do that and, uh, and get those voters out to vote at the polls. And because, uh, well, that, as I said, that's always a problem for them. And hmm. I, I would worry about them being able to do it. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. It looks like uh, the prime minister will head to the governor general on Sunday and call an election for September 20th. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you. Good luck. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.